0: so we are in a study of the gates and the walls of jerusalem we have been starting at the sheep gate where we accept jesus christ and then we went to the fish gate we went to the old gate we spent time building our broad wall and we have been in the valley gate forever and you know there's a we can talk about when we're in the valleys the valleys have a purpose They're to get us to trust God, to learn to lean into him. And I used to pray, oh, God, help me to learn the lesson of the valley because I don't want to have to go through all of this again. So that's what we were praying. We do not want to, we want to learn it. God, what are you trying to teach me? Because I don't want to go around Mount Sinai again like the children of Israel had to do. So we want to learn the lesson from each of our trials. So we are now have arrived at the dung gate, and we are going to throw out all of the spiritual dung. Now the key to being at this gate, if you remember on our map, this is the southernmost gate. This is where we travel and we come down to a point, God, I am ready to humble myself before you, and I'm ready for a place of absolute surrender before you. So we are at the very southernmost part of the journey. Repentance is the key to this gate. And without repentance, you will not be able to continue the journey and be lifted up into the power gates of the fountain gate and the water gate on the east side of Jerusalem. So we have a scripture, 1 1 John 1, 9. Notice this is written to believers. This is not for justification, this is for fellowship. This is for sanctification in our lives. He says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise to a believer. And so, as we, we all continue to sin, correct? that's the truth that we all know and so we can get a clogged up vessel and so when we will repent and confess our sin he can clean it and he restores us then to fellowship with him now i have a picture of a valley experience i went through a really dark valley and i know many of you have you may be in one currently but we have to learn in the valley experiences. We will shed many tears. But if my valley experience doesn't lead me to repentance and absolute surrender and humility before him, that valley was wasted on me. I have got to learn from the valley, and I can come out of the valley not cleansed. We are to come before the Lord Jesus Christ with a very sincere heart and I confess, and I repent of my sins. I get fellowship restored. He's cleaning my vessel. He fills me with his Holy Spirit, and then he has control of me, and that's the purpose. All of us need to be cleansed. We need to be emptied and prepared because if you've looked at the map as we leave the the dung gate at the bottom the next gate is the fountain gate that's your first power gate in your christian walk in your christian life and you've got to be clean or you will not have the power of the holy spirit in your life so before we move to the fountain gate we're going to spend a couple of weeks at the dung gate and we're all going to every day you're going to go to the Dungate because remember it is a daily call and we go there and we confess the sin you ask the Holy Spirit uh, show me what needs to be confessed in my life and I tell you when he first brought me to the place of absolute surrender years ago I've told you every time I would get back in the word and praying and stuff he would bring something else to mind and it's like the first six months I had a Roto-Rooter job Because I had a lot of stuff that was unconfessed and I had a lot of stuff that needed to be cleaned out. But when I got to that point, I can't even describe to you what it's like to be filled with the Spirit and know that He has control of you and He can give you victory over all your sins, victory over all of your circumstances. Now, here's a a picture and we have several graphic uh, symbols up here. If I want victory in my life, if I want victory over my circumstances, if I want victory over the sin in my life that plagues me, I have to be willing to be diligent and answer the call every day to use that dung gate. And what happens at the dung gate? All my unconfessed sin. Remember, this was where in the city of Jerusalem, which is God's dwelling place, They would take all the trash and the rubbish out through the dung gate and burn it. And we are God's dwelling place. So what is the Holy Spirit doing when I bow before him? Take all of my trash, my sin, my unconfessed sin, and he burns it out of me. And then he says, now I have control of you. But what happens? A couple of days pass, and I have stuff that needs to be cleaned out again. So you see, do we ever leave the dung gate? No. Isn't that awesome? We never get to leave this dung gate. We need to be there all the time if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and have victory in your life. Burn away. I used to pray this Oh, God, burn away from me everything that's not like Jesus. That's what happens at the dung gate. And then He will fill you, He lifts us up, and then we can go on to the fountain gate, which is a wonderful gate that we'll hit in about two or three weeks. So the use of the dung gate in my life, it will force me to cast aside and be obedient to Hebrews 12 2. What does it say? I'm running this race. Lay aside every sin and every weight, everything that's hindering you from running this race. And there are things that will trip me up. And so the dung gate will help get rid of those things that trip me up, hinder my spiritual growth, and from me being molded into the image of Jesus Christ. So you and I are going to look at seven things in our lives that have got to go on the burn pile. To get rid of the rubbish, we call it spiritual dung. These are things, if I don't get rid of them in my life, if I don't come to a place of absolute surrender and humility before the Lord and really getting to know him, if I don't dig into this word, this word under the power of the Holy Spirit will change you. But it can't change you if you're a clogged-up vessel and you don't get in the Word. So, what's the first thing we have to get rid of? Letter A, the old life, the glory of my old life. So, we're going to go to the Apostle Paul. He, did he not have a rich religious heritage with an illustrious ancestry? If anybody could have been proud of their old life and the glory of it, we know it was the Apostle Paul. He says in Philippians 3, 3 through 10, he could have had a lot of confidence in this. He said, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and we rejoice in Jesus Christ, and we have no confidence in our flesh. That's where you and I have to come many of you if you were like me and kind of a type a personality you used to think you could pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you could do it no more you have to come to the point where you know that without him being in control of you you can do nothing And so the flesh keeps rising up, does it not? Wanting to show me how strong it is or uh, its talents, its abilities, or, or anything like that. And we have to get to the point where I have no confidence in my flesh. None. So here's Paul. He's lifting everything that he could have had confidence in. He said, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, Paul said, I even more so. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm the stock of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. And concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless but then he says you've got to evaluate yourself let the holy spirit put you under the microscope so to speak and he said whatever those things that were gained to me i have now counted them loss for the sake of jesus christ all of that is lost for the sake of jesus christ Uh, he says everything else is worthless when it's compared with the infinite value of knowing christ jesus my lord To really get to know him, to get into this book and let him change you into who he wants you to be, which is in the image of Jesus Christ. Paul said, everything is dung, everything goes on the trash heap. Why? He says in the next verse, because I want to win Christ. Now that sounds kind of an odd statement. Was he already a believer and had Christ? Yes. But he says, I want to win Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And the conclusion Paul came to, everything he has talked about, he said it's done, and it's got to go on the the burn pile. He was willing to lose his religion he was willing to lose his reputation for everything he could gain in Jesus Christ he said all of those good things he mentioned they actually kept him away from God they kept him away from being justified in Jesus Christ so he was willing to lose his religion because what did he had have he had a long list of of things that he was supposed to do and things he was not supposed to do and he said that that was his religion he says I want to know Christ this is his confession and you see in the upper right corner there's a runner going for the goal this is you and I as we are in the race he said this is your objective that you will know Christ and you want to know the power of his resurrection. Ladies, do we realize that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead resides in us? He says, I want to know the power of that resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Are we to suffer for the sake of Christ? Yes. And he said, I want to be conformed to his death. He said, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the power of that resurrection, participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So there's one thing I'm doing, and I'm pressing, going forward towards that mark because there's a prize for us at the end of this race. So here's my confession. As God's new creation, if you're born again, are you a new creation in Christ? Okay, we count the glory of our old life as dung when we compare it to surrendering ourselves to him, getting in this word, and we get to know him and we get to experience him, experience his victory in my life. You know my story. When I was in the deep, dark valley of Lara for 10 years, God gave me a peace that passed all understanding, even in the midst of the dark pit, and I cannot even describe it to you. It was a peace that I've never known before that time. And in the midst of a dark valley, when you surrender yourself to him, and you get your vessel clean and ask him to fill you and cut away everything that's not like Jesus, there's that peace. And he promises it, and he will give it to you. So, here is me running in my race. I am that new creation in Christ. He says, the old has gone and the new has come. So, here's the glory of my old life, ladies. You see my burn pile? It is dung. So, the glory of my old life, just like the Apostle Paul, has to go on the burn pile. Letter B. What's the second thing that can prevent me from absolute surrender? Because a lot of people I've talked to, especially a lot of the mothers I've talked to, they don't know about this absolute surrender thing. Why? Because we all want to keep a little control. Because what's the question that almost every mother who has a prodigal asks me? What can I do? What can I do? And the short answer is you can do nothing accept what God demands of us, and he wants us to come to absolute surrender and humility and really get to know him. Let him do the work in you, and he'll take care of the prodigal. So I have to throw out seeking self-glory because who gets the glory in every situation and circumstance when victory comes? Jesus. And remember the theme of Laura's wedding? Look what the Lord has done. So we may be in a deep valley, we may be in a hard circumstance, and boy, when we wait on the Lord, what happens? He brings victory, and when we get through it, we can stand back and say, look what the Lord has done. Because if we get our hands out of it, He will work miracles that we can't even fathom. So, Matthew twenty seventeen to 34, we have to glorify Him completely. Now, Jesus is with his disciples, and for the third time, what has he said? I am going to be arrested, I am going to be crucified, and I'm going to be resurrected. But that message is not penetrating their heart, although he has said it three times. So in contrast to this announcement, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be suffering, I'm going to be crucified and resurrected and die and all of this, here is James and John with their mother. And so they have a request. He's told them three times what's going to be happening. And he's announced the cross, but they're interested in a crown. They want reserved seats on a special throne. And Salome their mother was interested in promoting her sons. Now what's wrong with the request? First of all, it was born of ignorance, because Jesus said, "You don't even know what you're asking. You want a throne? He said, you don't know what you're asking. This is a question my flesh would ask, my old life. Am I going to have a throne? He said, the path to a throne is difficult. It is difficult, and you're asking for it. You don't realize it, that what is going to happen to those two boys, James will be the first disciple that's martyred, and John's going to have really hard days and spend an exile on the Isle of Patmos. You want a throne? You don't know what you're asking because the path is very difficult. But many of us, we want our will and we want our way. It is very hard to give up what we want. So the other thing he said it's wrong, you lack God's direction because you're thinking like the world thinks. James and John want to lord it over all the other disciples that's what a lot of people want to do they want to lord it over their authority their power they want to lord it over other people that's what the the unsaved gentile rulers did they lorded themselves over their subjects but this kind of request this kind of attitude it is fleshly and it's selfish asking glory for themselves and not for the lord to be glorified in them and through them so remember this request of satan Satan, this is a request that comes from Satan into our heart. It's motivated by pride that I want to lord it over people because Satan sought a throne, and what happened to him? He was cast down. Jesus even says in the New Testament, I saw Satan being cast down flat like lightning. So remember when uh, Satan met Jesus right before he's going to start his ministry he goes he's been baptized and he goes out into the wilderness and satan is going to tempt him and he says i will give you all of the kingdoms of the world now god had already promised him that in psalm 2 that's a messianic psalm with that promise but satan remember satan has dominion he's prince and power of the air right now and so satan offered it to him he could bypass the cross See, Satan wants to offer you something without the suffering, but Jesus refused. So Satan will magnify the throne and make it look really good to our fleshly heart, to our old man, but he doesn't magnify the means to the end because the Bible teaches all through here you will have a cross before you have a crown. Cross first, then the crown, and Satan tries to reverse it. So he warns Salome and her sons, these special thrones are available to people that are worthy of them because there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God, none. So the key, ladies, to greatness in the kingdom of God, it's found not in your position, it's not in any kind of power you have, it's in your character that you identify with jesus christ his service his service to others his suffering we are to identify with him in that role so we think we're going on to letter c now what else can prevent me from absolute surrender so these things seeking glory for myself and so forth in the glory of my old life they will prevent me from being obedient bowing my knee and bowing my heart to jesus christ at the dungate what else number c we have to throw out strange gods and idolatry in our life and you think i don't have a god in my life oh i think we all do okay an idol is anything that will take the place in your life of the preeminence of jesus christ and god So I think if we look at it in that context, we'll say there are things that sometimes come before my relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're going to go to the book of 2 Kings chapter 23. We're with King Josiah, one of the good kings. If you remember, they were cleaning house one day and somebody found the scrolls. And they took him to Josiah, and when he heard the word of God being read, remember he rent his clothes, and he's ready to clean house now, God's dwelling place. So in verses 4 through 7, Josiah and his priests focused on cleansing the temple. This is God's dwelling place, ladies, and every time we talk about it, we're also talking about ourselves, because he lives here. He focused on the cleansing the temple of all the idolatry symbols. And wait a minute, we got pagan staff members that have crept into our system. We're going to clean them out. Verse six, he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord. Those were those Asherah poles, Asherah poles that were despicable, and they were involved with fertility and despicable prostitution stuff. So he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and you and I have talked about that valley a lot. He burns all this at the brook of Kidron. He stamps it, he grinds it to powder, and he casts the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. He doesn't want anything left that even reminds them of those idols. In verses 8 through 14, King Josiah takes all of his good priests now, and he's going to go on a systematic and thorough cleansing in all of Judah this is the southern kingdom not just Jerusalem but they're going to go all over the southern kingdom and they're going to every place of idol worship and remove it and they're going to remove all those corrupted priests yes get the false teachers out we want to be rid of someone who doesn't stand for the truth of God's word and it is not exhibited in their life Then he goes on, if we are seeking the Lord, if I am truly seeking him with all of my heart, it will drive me to action. That's why I went on a Roto-Rooter job for six months. When you're seeking the Lord with all your heart and he shows you who you really are, you are willing. So it drives him to action. And in verse 15, he went to the altar at Bethel. If you remember that, this was with King Jeroboam and he was the one that led the northern kingdom into idolatry, and he did not want them going back to Jerusalem to the temple. So he built an altar at Bethel, which is just kind of right across the border, and then he built another one in the north at Dan. Put golden calves in there and told the people, this is who you can worship. So... Josiah goes in there and he takes that altar in high place at Bethel and he demolishes it he burns it and he grinds it to powder and all the Asherah poles also and in verse 24 he got rid of the mediums the spiritist the astrological charts the Ouija boards y'all getting the point? people that go to seances or they're contacting their spirit guides and so forth the uh, the household gods the idols and all the other detestable things that were seen in judah and jerusalem he did to fulfill the requirements of the law and in verse 25 neither before nor after josiah was there a king like him who turned to the lord like he did with all of his heart with all of his soul with all of his strength in accordance with all of the law of moses what was he to do i'm seeking the lord and it will drive me to action i'll be willing to cast out and i'll be willing to clean god's dwelling place whatever it takes in my life then i want to go to the ancient city of ephesus because Ephesus is where Paul went and he made a comment that everywhere he looked, on every corner was a statue of a Greek uh, pagan god or goddess, and who was the goddess that they really worshiped in Ephesus? Anybody know? Diana. And there were pictures and uh, statues of Diana everywhere. Do you remember, this was the place where about 25,000 people met. And they had a riot. And Demetrius was the silversmith. And he said, we got to get rid of that Paul. He said, because what did they do? They made all the statues and all the things for Diana. And this was their business and their trade. And people bought them like crazy. And Paul was telling them about Jesus. And so they wanted to run him out of town. That's the city that we're in. It is heavily involved in the occult and in all of that uh, business with diana so this is one reason god enabled paul to do some really miraculous things in this town because he's in really satan's territory this this city was permeated with satan and the occult so god gave paul some special things to do he could perform many miracles and demonstrate god's power now does satan always have a counterfeit Oh, sure, he always does, to oppose the work that maybe the person that's doing it from the Lord is doing. Can some people not discern the difference? It's hard, because can Satan be transformed into an angel of light? And what he's doing can look like the real thing. Okay, so we know that. So, we're going to talk about the evil spirits being confronted. If you remember, after Paul... He had cast out a demon out of a man. So now these seven Jewish priests come in, and they're going to try to cast out demons. But they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. So they come to the man that's possessed by the demon, and they say, we we want that demon to come out, and it's in the name of the Jesus that Paul talks about. (laughs) You know, that's the way that they could say it the one that Paul preaches about, well, their scheme did not work. And it says in verse 15, the evil spirit that's in the demonized man, he said, you know, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? You know, so they, they didn't recognize it. And so the demonized man, they're not able to get the demons out of him, he attacks all seven priests, and he drives them from the house. Now, let's hypothetically if this exorcism if the false guys over here had been able to do this it would have discredited paul and the name of jesus christ but god used this scream scheme to defeat satan and to bring conviction because there's a lot of believers in ephesus that are still involved in their magical arts And they're still involved in some of the occult, even though they are now a believer. So instead of disgracing the name of Jesus, the event is going to magnify the name of Jesus Christ and cause the word of God to spread more rapidly. And look what they did in Acts 19, verses 18 through 20. They brought all those bad books. I can just feature some of the books that they brought on the occult and on Diana and all the gods and goddesses, the Greek gods, and they burned them before all the men. And listen to this, what they did. Many who had believed, so now we've got believers, okay? They confessed and they told their deeds. And the verb tense indicates they kept coming, they kept confessing, and they kept showing But apparently many of the believers had not made a clean break with sin. Do a lot of people have sins they continue to hold on to? You know, our little pet things we don't quite want to give up? They hadn't made a clean break with sin, and they're still practicing their magic, but the Lord dealt with them. And it says many of those who had practiced their magic, they're bringing all their books, and they're burning them, getting rid of them in the sight of everybody. And when they counted it up, the value of them, it was 50,000 pieces of silver. That would have been a lot of money in that day. Some commentator says this would have been the total salary of 150 men working for an entire year. That's a lot. These people, when they're confronted with truth, they did not count the cost of what it was going to cost them but they repented and they turned from their sins and what were the results when this happened it says the word of the lord god grew mightily and god is going to prevail and his truth so i have a question for each of us you know i've been asking myself these questions for a week what would what am i willing to cast on the dung pile in the fire No matter what it costs me. The root of all of our idolatry is self, all of it. Many of us are on the altar of materialism. We can't get over the desire for more stuff, for better stuff, the latest thing. Also, there's an altar of pride and ego. Anything that will increase my own self esteem, anything that makes me feel more important. Anything that makes me feel more successful makes me feel better in other people's eyes. What else will keep me, prevent me from absolute surrender, humility, and knowing Jesus? Legalism. Oh, boy. I am so familiar with this. This is man's attempt to sanctify myself because I am going to carry out self-imposed rules. You know, several years ago for the 55-plus here, I did a a talk on uh, confessions of a Pharisee. (laughs) And when they came in and everybody seated out there, I said, welcome to Pharisees Anonymous. (laughs) And I said, I am a recovering Pharisee so I'm very familiar with legalism and so we have a Pharisee here who's very legalistic and they place their unreachable standards on other people which can only lead to us having a judgmental attitude so you see the Pharisee here and the poor little guy that he's brought in and he says this is the list of things you're supposed to do maybe some things you're not supposed to do so y'all know my story years ago you know it was very important to me to be able to say i don't cuss drink or smoke okay you know good for you (laughs) but you're still dealing with all the stuff that's going on inside yeah still dealing so legalism stinks of pride and self-inflicted rules So if legalism and then my flesh gets involved, have I put myself back under bondage? Yes, because I knew that salvation is a gift. Putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for justification is a gift. And no work's added. But then somehow, especially in my teen years and early adult years, I got on this thought that I had to do all these things To become more spiritual and those of you that have known me for 40 50 years I was down here every time the door was open doing everything I'm supposed to do and I thought I am more spiritual than some people that don't come all the time (laughs) I'm sure some of you have never thought that (laughs) okay so we tend to judge people according to the rules that we make for ourselves and so I actually had put myself in bondage because I could I could come down here and play the piano uh, be in vacation bible school do all the things that I was doing attend bible study attend all the women's conferences check my list off I did this this and this but I go home and what am I dealing with envy jealousy legalism why are things happening to my family we're here all the time and they hardly ever come and their home seems to be a piece of cake you know when okay y'all know the drill okay that's how i thought a lot in my younger years we have learned we are to live in the liberty of jesus christ And I rely on his Holy Spirit then to empower me to be able to obey the word. It's not all my spiritual activity that I'm down here. You know I was like a type A hamster. That's what I was like on that hamster wheel. And it was frustrating because then when you have sin in your life and you're dealing with all this stuff and your thought life and everything and most of it being judgmental, then you feel guilty and you feel condemned because you cannot live that life in your own flesh. So I live in the liberty of Jesus Christ, and when I bow before him, his Holy Spirit will empower me to obey his word. And so I've learned what it's like to live in the walk of Jesus Christ. He says, and I like this from the Amplified Version, it was from this, it was for this freedom that Christ set me free, completely liberating us therefore he said keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery he delivered me from a yoke of slavery and i turned around and put myself under another one you were once removed from that so here he's saying stop you stop doing all of the work you stop trying to live the life because you can't do it and boy when i found out god would do the work in me he put the desire in me he put the zeal and the passion in me and he's doing the work and it's all for his good pleasure and then the change in my life really began to happen and here i am i'm this new creature in christ and if you see my graphic i am free from the yoke that i put on myself and so i have to throw out all the legality all that legalism has to be thrown out of my heart so here i am ladies i'm at the dump i have my list all those legalistic things it's got to go to the dungate and it has to be dumped and burned away out of my life because if I'm truly seeking the Lord, I will take the action to be there and dump it all out before him. Letter E. What else is going to prevent me from having this uh, life of absolute surrender? Oh, being judgmental, which kind of went with legalism, but this is a little different. Ah, this is where the pot calls the kettle black. And this is meaning blaming each other when both parties are guilty you know we tend to judge people for a lot of the things that we are guilty of yeah but we judge them about it so in Matthew 7 1 it says judge not that you be not judged and the tent signifies here it is a once for all final judgment so let's dig into this and try to get the meaning of it It says, in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, that's what's going to be measured to you. If I judge myself first and I let the Holy Spirit examine my heart, I'm really preparing myself for the final judgment when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says Paul says all of us are going to give an account for our life for every idle word and for the things that are unconfessed in our life that's why we need to stay at the dung gate I want to show up without with a lot of uh, things being cleaned out I don't want to show up as a real clogged vessel So he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice there's a log in your own eye? See, I was guilty of this for a long time. How can you say to your brother, Here, I want to help you get that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? He says, You're a hypocrite. First, get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help the brother get the little speck out of his. You know, it's easy to judge the mistakes of others, but it's so difficult to realize our own mistakes. It's very hard. So what does a Pharisee do who's very judgmental? Pharisees are known to be judgmental. They act like they're playing God, and they condemn others because it makes them look good. And they never, it never dawns on them that God's going to judge them. God's going to judge all of us now you and I as believers will not be judged for our sin that's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and that is that's paid for but at the judgment seat of Christ it's my obedience it's my life how how have I let the Holy Spirit conform me to the image of Jesus Christ how much have I been obedient to these commands to pursue holiness pursue godliness, be ye holy as I am holy. They saw the sins of others, but they did not see their own sins. So the purpose of self-judgment, if I let the Holy Spirit put me under the microscope and I agree with him and I ask him to clean me, he is preparing us to be able to serve other people because we are obligated to help others grow in grace we can go to hebrews and find out we are to help the weaker brother and those that are struggling we're to come alongside of them and help them and encourage them but if i'm a clogged up vessel i can't help anybody so it is an obligation that we keep ourselves clean so we can minister to others if i don't face up to my own sin and confess them i blind myself to myself y'all get that okay i cannot see clearly enough to help anybody else you know there's that saying because i'm i could be a control freak Uh, why do i try to control other people i can't even control myself and that's true so it says in matthew 6 the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body is going to be full of light But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. This is a person that's not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, the eye represents the attitude of my mind. What is my mind? It's how I think, it's my thoughts. If my eye or my mind is focused on serving and glorifying God... There will be light within. But if I get my eye or my mind focused on myself and the things I want, it has to be done the way I want. Everything's got to be just like I want it. There's darkness within me. And I'm being ruled by that. So I've got to be willing to put my actions and my attitudes under the microscope and really examine them. And I can't pass judgment on anybody else because I don't know their motives. I don't know anybody's motives. And a lot of the times we don't know our own. God will reveal the motives of the heart. So somebody, it looks like, can be doing a great work. But they're doing it for the wrong motive. And we may applaud the work that they're doing. But we don't know the motive behind it. And then on the other hand, it can look like somebody's, they're having a hard time their job didn't turn out exactly like they thought and it looks like a failure but they had a sincere motive that's all going to be at the judgment seat of christ because god knows the motives of all of our hearts so at the uh he will examine the secrets of our heart and he says i will reward you accordingly so there's another prayer for yourself that god gives you pure motives that you Create in me that clean heart. Search my heart, O oh God, and know me and try me and see if there's a wicked way in me. Those are the things we need to pray for ourselves. And then Colossians 3, 20 through 22 to 25, he says, Servant, you're to obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service like a man pleaser, but you do everything in singleness of heart because you fear God. And whatever you do, you do it heartily as to the Lord and not for men. And here is the part you want to underline and star. Knowing, you know this, that of the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Why? Because you're serving the Lord Christ. And he goes on to say, If you do wrong, you shall receive for the wrong which you've done, and there's no respect or partiality of persons. So letter F This takes us right into wrong motives. If I have wrong motives in my service to the Lord, it's going to keep me from being willing to go to that place of absolute surrender and humility. Now, I have to throw out wrong motives for serving him you know people can dangle a carrot out there and you're willing to do about anything you got to have the right motives especially when you serve the lord and serve man so we're going to go to matthew 19 27 through chapter 20 verse 16 so peter saw a contrast here in the way that uh, the disciples responded and the way the wealthy ruler responded to the The commands of Jesus Christ and listen to Peter's statement to Jesus we have forsaken all we have followed thee what shall we have oh boy but you know what Jesus did right then he started telling them about some marvelous promises some eternal rewards that they were going to have Because they had given all. But let's just dig into this a little bit more. They are gonna share thrones when he establishes his kingdom. Good things they had forsaken for his sake, for the sake of Christ, would be returned to them a hundredfold. He said, You are not making a sacrifice, you're making an investment. You're building up treasure in heaven that's where all of us should be focused building our treasure in heaven and he said not all not all your dividends are going to come in this life that's exactly what it tells us in the hall of faith chapter in Hebrews 11 they were willing to live in caves they were willing to be persecuted they were willing to have all kinds of trouble in their life and he said they have not received the promises yet they're to come so we have to keep that in mind so jesus detected in peter's question the possibility of peter are you serving me with a wrong motive because what's his question what shall we have so people that look and they think well they see themselves as first a lot of times they're going to be last at the judgment seat of christ and jesus is issuing a warning here So we're going to go to the parable about the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. So let's see what we can gain from this. There are some things that you must understand before we attack this parable. First of all, this parable has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. Because we don't work for our salvation, and you have people that are going to work in the master's vineyard okay so this is not about my salvation or justification and what did they agree a day's wage would be a penny that's how they started also point number two that you've got to understand this this has nothing to do with rewards because we are told all throughout the new testament we are not all going to receive the same reward okay so it's not about my salvation it's not about rewards and you say well what's it about the emphasis here oh i have another scripture sorry first corinthians 3 8 he that plants and he that waters are one every man will receive his own reward according to his own labor so rewards are all different they're not the same now what's the emphasis in this parable the right attitude as i serve god it's about my attitude so let's look at this The emphasis is, we have two different kinds of workers that are coming to work in God's vineyard. The first ones that come are going to be hired for a penny for their work. They're going to work all day, but they want a contract. When I come and start working for you, I want a contract because I want to know up front what am I going to get. And did they agree to work for a penny for the day? Yes, okay. Okay now so they have the contract and they know that they're going to get a penny when the day's over now the next workers that come i don't need a contract i'm going to come work in your field i'm going to labor but i will take whatever you think is right when my labor's done a lot of difference huh right attitude so when they come to the end of the day and they're going to get paid what does the owner of the vineyard do He says, I want those that were hired first, and they insisted on this contract, they're going to get paid last because I want them to be standing there in line and see how much those other workers get who came without a contract. The owner could show those very first workers, if you would have trusted me, you would have seen how generous I am. So you and I are going to role play And we are the workers that demanded I have a contract. And I know that I'm gonna get a penny at the end of the day. You hire me first, but you're gonna pay me last, all right? And there's about five shifts of workers that come in on the scene. So here we are, and the first people that are hired are gonna get paid how much? A penny, and they've already agreed, and they have a contract. But the people that come in last like over uh, about an hour, before the day's over how much do they get a penny and i'm seeing this and i'm thinking oh i work 12 hours i'm gonna get 12 pennies because he's paying them the same thing so i'm thinking i'm gonna get 12 pennies well then there's some people that come in at noon and you're like oh well i should at least get four pennies you know so they're standing in line last seeing how he's paying everybody else and then the people that came in at three o'clock they only get two pennies And they're thinking, well, at least I'll get double what I thought I was going to get. Okay, did y'all follow all that? Yeah, I'm not good in math, but I think I got this right. Okay. Now, they agreed to work for the penny. Did they get what they asked for? But they're complaining, complaining, complaining because they saw other people get the same thing when they didn't work near as long. Had they trusted the goodness of the owner they would have received far more if they hadn't insisted on that contract. So what are some lessons we can learn from this one? We should not serve him because we expect to receive a reward. We should not insist on knowing what we're going to get. The highest kind of obedience is not based on a desire for reward or a fear of punishment. It's motivated by love of your lord jesus christ and what he has done for you god is infinitely generous and gracious he always is going to give us better than we deserve always and he knows our motives so we see peter uh we have left all and followed you what shall we have now if you see my red flag guy here he is waving the red flag what is the danger in me having this kind of an attitude when the first came they supposed they would get more but they each only got the same thing they got that penny so we have some lessons from this these are red flags for you and me i must never suppose i'm going to get something more if i don't really deserve it never number two it is possible to do the father's work but you're not doing his will from your heart that's where we put ourselves under the microscope ask the Holy Spirit to examine our motives we are not to do it with eye service as a man pleaser it's a, we are bond servants of Jesus Christ we do his will from our heart according to Ephesians 6 red flag number 3 if I serve him only for the benefits temporal now or eternal I can miss the best blessings that he has for me right now in my day to day life I have to trust him unreservedly and believe he will always give me what is best for me. Always. So there's pride involved in asking, What are we going to have? There's another red flag going. How do you know you're going to have anything? That's the question beware of overconfidence when it comes to the rewards god is going to be giving for those that are first in their own eyes and even maybe in the eyes of other people they can end up being last because only god knows our heart he's the only one don't get discouraged some people feel like an unprofitable servant they can end up first They can end up first. Beware of the danger of watching other workers and measuring yourself by them. All of us can fall into that rut. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, You don't judge anything before the time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light all the hidden things that are in the dark. And he will make manifest the counsel of the heart and then shall every man have praise of God we see the worker and I see the work that they're doing but only God knows their heart and their motives beware of criticizing God and feeling like we've been left out I I see myself on every slide back especially back in my younger days Had the early morning workers trusted the generous owner and not asked for an agreement, he would have given them so much more. They couldn't even rejoice when other people got more. Instead, they got jealous and complained, just complaining. The goodness of the owner did not lead them to repentance. There's a scripture, yeah, Romans 2, 4, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and his long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God should lead you and me to repentance? And many times it's repentance for our attitudes and so forth. That's what we're doing at the Dungate. The key to the Dungate is repentance. A complaining servant has never fully yielded to the master's will. Wow. okay so if we want to be successful and have victory at the dung gate and we want him to control our lives and burn away the sin and the fullness of jesus we've got to be willing to daily go to the dung gate oh letter g this is our last one i think what can prevent me from absolute surrender that either i stumble or i am the stumbling block to someone else so in Isaiah he says build up build up and prepare the road and he says get all the obstacles out of the way take that stumbling block it's a cause of people falling a a cause of them sinning get it out of the way of my people every stumbling block get it removed now I have Romans 14 13 up here and the first word is therefore therefore So when we see the word therefore, what do we do? We back up a verse, at least one. So that's what we're doing. What comes before therefore? He says, we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each of us is going to give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, I am going to decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. This is our final one. For if someone sees you, maybe a person that has some knowledge, they're eating in an idol's temple. Remember, we're in the city of Corinth. Then, if he is weak will he not be encouraged to eat something sacrificed to the idol and it's violating his own convictions so do you see that we have a stronger more mature christian and a weaker brother that's what we're talking about here now for through your knowledge your knowledge is your spiritual maturity the weak man can become ruined He will suffer in his spiritual life, and he is also your brother for whom Christ died. He says, and when you sin against that brother and sister in this way, and you wound their weak conscience because you're confusing them, who am I sinning against? Christ. Therefore, if my eating a certain food... Now, remember, in Corinth, they had all kinds of idols and temples. They sacrificed meat to the idols. Okay, if you're a believer, a newborn believer, and you've come out of that, you don't want to be doing that. Now, the stronger person may realize he can do it, and it's not a problem with him, and we're going to talk about that. But that's the situation here in this passage. If my eating a certain food causes my brother to stumble or sin, I will not eat such meat ever again, so that I don't cause that brother to stumble. That's the attitude of the more mature one. Notice this is the uh, the concern here. This is addressed to the stronger Christians that were in Corinth. The stronger Christian has to help a weaker Christian grow and mature. Stronger Christians can become a stumbling block to a weaker Christian. So what's really the heart of the issue here? Christian liberty. And someone might think, I understand that. I can eat the meat. I have liberty in Christ. That's the issue here that he's getting at. So the question is, can a Christian eat meat that has been sacrificed to the idols? yes yes they can a strong christian knows can this quote non-existent god or the god out of stone or wood or whatever this god that can do nothing can he contaminate the food no so is it okay for me as a believer to eat it yes it is okay But the weaker Christians, the newer Christians coming into the fellowship who have, that was a big deal, they are offended. Can you become a stumbling block to them? They've just been saved out of this pagan idolatry and they're looking at you and they say, why are you eating this meat? See, it's a big deal to them. All right. Now, weak Christians, this would have been me many years ago, Weak Christians need the security, I need rules, and I need laws because I'm afraid to use my liberty in Christ. That's a weaker Christian coming in to the fellowship. Weak Christians are prone to criticize (coughs) and judge stronger Christians. I want you all to know this lesson has stepped all over me. They're prone to criticize and judge stronger Christians, and they're prone to stumble over what some stronger Christian is doing. Are you all with me? Okay, you're following, good. Now, the conscience, it says, bears witness to God's moral law. And as I increase in spiritual knowledge and I act on it, should my conscience be getting stronger? Yes, as I grow in the admonition and the word of God. But a recently born-again one... He's a weak Christian. Their conscience, according to God's word, is weak. They haven't learned yet. And we need to guard it carefully. Some of them, we get people into the church. We say, we're so glad that you're here and you're born again. And then we leave them alone. These are the people that need discipled. Inside the church needs to be a place of mentoring and discipling people. Because many of them are just left... They are. They won't grow. They they're ignorant. They don't know how to study their Bible. They don't know how to get into it. They remain in infancy. I would say I was an infant Christian for probably thirty years. That is sad because I was sitting in a Baptist church the whole time. Now, they get easily defiled, they get easily wounded, and they're easily offended. A weaker Christian they're afraid of freedom they're like this little child who's old enough to go to school but they're afraid to leave home every day and they've got to be taken to school every day you know you cannot always solve a problem with logic take a child that's afraid of the dark a little child afraid of the dark he's not going to be assured by arguments especially if the adult adopts a superior attitude that's just stupid for you to be afraid of the dark there's nothing in here The strong ones in the church of Corinth, they were puffing up themselves instead of building up the weaker brothers. You and I have an obligation to build up the weaker brothers. The truth is, if I have a know-it-all attitude, it is evidence, really, of my ignorance. None of us know it all. None of us. And so if I ever come across this, I know how to do this, I know how to do this, this has to be done my way, etc., that is really showing ignorance. Now, it is one thing to know doctrine, because for years I could spout off all of the Baptist doctrine. I had been, I mean, I could have won the Bible bowl. You know, because I knew all of the facts. But it's quite another thing for the word to get in you and you know it and you know the lord jesus christ it is possible to grow in bible knowledge but you never grow in grace or in your relationship with jesus christ now knowledge can be a weapon to fight with or it can be a tool to build with but there are a lot of people that stick that chest out like that what's that fish a puffer fish And if knowledge puffs up, it can never build anybody. It will fall flat. A stronger Christian has to defer to the weaker Christian. Don't do anything that would harm them. They need to be brought along. The weaker Christian may imitate the stronger Christian, and it can lead them into sin. So knowledge must be linked with love. We're told in Ephesians, we speak the truth to people in a spirit of love. You don't condemn them and beat them over the head. It says we are to build up the weak brethren and we're to put them first above ourselves, even though I know I could eat the meat. But I don't do it for their sake. So what about knowledge that isn't linked with love? And I just have a head full of knowledge. It yields a big head instead of an enlarged heart. People get a big head because they think they know so much. He says, some Christians grow, others just swell. The bait of Satan... In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, adversary. You are an offense, literally. Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not mindful of the things of God. What was God's will for his son? Peter wasn't mindful of it. He was mindful acting like a man with a man's view. And Peter, here's the road that Jesus is going to go on And he knows what the Father's will. And he is committed to go that way. And Peter's a stumbling block. Because Peter said, it's not right for you to suffer and die. And Jesus said, you're a stumbling block because I'm trying to do God's will. And I'm committed to that. He said, you're an offense. You're a stumbling block to me. Remember when uh, Satan took Jesus up on the pinnacle? He agreed with Peter's words. He used the same approach to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus knew what the will of the Father was, and he was come to be obedient to do what the Father said. Remember, until Peter was filled with the Spirit, he had a tendency to argue with God's Word until he was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. So I have a question for you and me. Do I accept by faith that I am supposed to die to myself and suffer for the sake of Christ. You have to accept it. And it says "But Satan's going to come whisper in your ear. And remember, Satan knows what to put for bait on your hook to get you. Remember in the Garden of Eden, hath God said, is that what he really meant? Is that what he really said? Do my actions reveal... That I'm arguing with God about humility and absolute surrender. What's preventing me from obeying God's will for my life? Where can I find the mind of God? Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus Christ. Where can I find it? You feed yourself with his word. So I gave you a little chart. We can deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Christ or we can live for ourselves. We ignore the cross and will follow the world. We can lose our life for his sake and forsake the world or we can save our life for our own sake and gain the world now. I can keep my soul now and share his reward, his glory or I can lose my soul. That's my mind, will, and emotions. That is what is in the process of being saved day by day, the part of me that needs sanctification, and I will lose his reward and his glory. When we deny ourselves, we are to give ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, and I agree that I am going to share in his shame and his death and let the Holy Spirit have complete control of me. To take up my cross doesn't mean I'm going to carry a burden or I'm going to have a problem because we all have that, even people that aren't born again. That means I identify Christ with you in your rejection, in your shame, in your suffering, and in your death. Remember the pattern. Suffering always comes before glory. So ladies, it's time, the call of the dungate is upon us every day. It's time to get all the garbage out of our soul so he can clean us. And the questions I leave us with, am I willing to humble myself and diligently use the dungate because God is searching for clean, empty vessels that he can use in his service? That's what he's looking for. And in Second Chronicles, he says, My eyes are going to and fro throughout the earth. I'm looking for people whose heart is totally devoted to me. Why? So I can work mightily in their behalf. That's a great promise. He's looking for those people. And it says in Matthew 16, 27, The Son of Man someday is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward every one of us according to our works. This is a judgment seat. And remember, ladies, suffering for His sake comes before glory, and our cross comes before a crown. Let's pray. Father, have we